Take a network break, grab a virtual donut, or if you're feeling fancy today, a nice pano chocolat, and join us for our weekly analysis of tech news worth talking about. We've got stories on Equinix, Huawei, a legal spat between Netscout and Gartner, and more. Today's sponsor is Thousand Eyes. They give you performance visibility from every user to every app over any network, both internal and external, so you can migrate to the cloud, troubleshoot faster, and deliver exceptional user experience. Sign up for a free account at thousandeyes.com slash packetpushers. And while you're there, get yourself a free Thousand Eyes t-shirt. And stay tuned after the news. We've got a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Thousand Eyes. We review some of the biggest outages from 2019, what caused them, and why internet visibility is critical to your business. If you like Network Break, check out our other podcasts, including IPv6 Bug. Buzz, Full Stack Journey, and Day 2 Cloud. It's nerdy tech analysis and compelling conversations about infrastructure, cloud, professional development, and more. You can find them all at backofpushers.net. Yeah, IPv6 is getting rave reviews lately. If you're into the IPv6 thing, all they do is talk about it every two weeks. They just dive into something on IPv6. Really good training, really good thinking, really good professional development, you know, career-enhancing type stuff. Maybe yeah, years uh, away <laughs> before it comes to the enterprise, as we've said many times, but it feels a little closer. Right yeah, it feels a little closer. I mean, you know, so maybe just listening to that every week could help you uh, maybe not have such pain when it comes later on. You'll be ready. That's right. And Ed Horley, Scott Hogue, and Tom Coffeen uh, really know what they're talking about, but they also have a way of communicating the information in ways that are interesting and compelling. So it's it's not just a dull slog through <laughs> lots of dotted quads. <laughs> it's a good podcast. Yes, it's a really Yeah, it's a good podcast. Yeah. All right. Well, we do have a little news to talk about, so let's dive in. Uh, we're leading off with Equinix. They announced they're acquiring Packet. Packet's a startup that provides automated single-tenant bare metal servers. The amount of the acquisition was not disclosed. I, th I was thinking about getting contact, seeing if the domain name's for sale, because I wouldn't mind owning Packet.com. What about you? <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> yeah, I'm not too worried about Equinix. <laughs> no, no. I think I, lots of attention was paid to this, and kind of Equinix is, you know, the interconnection company, and they've been steadily buying up. Uh, different companies that do IXPs and interconnection and getting a footprint in data centers around the world so that they can sell interconnection services. Mm -hmm. And to buy Packet doesn't immediately sort of go, yay, winning strategy. But then on social media, everybody went, wow, this is amazing. Don't miss this. And a couple of the other press sites like Light Reading came up with it. And I went, oh, okay, I'll go and take a closer look. And actually, there is something there. It's not immediately obvious. Packet is a... I don't know. What would you describe it? It's not. It's kind of like a different vision to what the hyperscale clouds are. Google, Azure, and uh, AWS. They want to sell you software. They don't want to sell you servers. But uh, a packet was actually selling servers and bare metal provisioning, and I think that's a very difference. And there's there's a market for that. Yeah. So their value proposition was instead of trying to extract away all hardware through the cloud, they let you customize the hardware to your heart's content. Uh, if you've got an app that needs some kind of special bare metal access, then they're the ones for you. And it's not just your typical Intel AMD. They'll also throw in other kinds of processors and chips. So they, they, yeah, they find themselves a good specialized niche while also providing that cloud-like service of running all that infrastructure for you. And they also give you lots of hooks uh, for your developers to get in there and build apps on top of that bare metal. Also, single tenancy is important as well. Most cloud services are multi-tenant in that you're going to be sharing that physical resource with other people. Uh, when you go to Packet, you get your own server or servers. Yeah, that's right. And so it's this bare metal thing. But where... AWS and Google and Azure have done a pretty poor job of bare metal provisioning. They haven't really added a bunch of features. Packer has really focused on... That's where they've specialized, yeah. Yeah, bare metal first. So the marketing stuff that I was reading said, by focusing on subscale instead of hyperscale and investing in a non-verticalized model, they believe an upstart with the right vision could level the playing field. So now they have 20 global data centers where they've got their bare metal servers in them. 
presumably they're not their own. They're just a couple of racks full of gear with their own provisioning system attached to it. Yes. So I guess for Equinix, what they actually get is a chance to become a bare metal cloud provider or a more convincing bare metal cloud provider. They've been trying to get into this market for some time. They've been buying up data centers and you know building out a footprint. They've been buying European operations substantially over the last two or three years. We haven't talked about it because we're not really you know, a colo podcast, but I do keep an eye on these things. Um, And they really see an opportunity and they bloviate extensively about edge computing and how they see themselves as being part of the edge computing phenomenon or blah, 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 you know, sort of stuff. And this is a far more convincing play because now what they can say is uh, where they have footprint, they can now uh, instantiate an instance of the packet bare metal thing and say to customers, well, we've got an edge and here's a bare metal and you can use us. And that's kind of an NFV play that might actually work as opposed to the NFV play where, you know, the telcos have been working on NFV play where you bring your VM and they'll host it for you. So they look more like AWS and nobody trusts the telco to host a VM. And I don't think the telcos have even managed to do it for themselves. So the idea that they'll be able to do it for someone else is kind of just laughable in the extreme. So... Equinix gets a chance to do this. So I'm pretty pleased. I think this makes sense. Yeah, I think there's something there. I think so too. And it's interesting that, yes, Packet in their release doesn't talk much about edge computing, but with Equinix, it's all about edge computing. And I hadn't known much about Packet, so I thought Packet was an edge play. That's They do that, but that's not their core business value. But yeah, it seems like Equinix is positioning this for whatever reason as an edge play. And we know that edge computing is now uh, the current hotness. Uh, the idea is to deploy some compute as close to the customer or resource as possible. For these cases like IoT and automation, I guess Equinix sees an opportunity there to leverage what Packet can do on bare metal plus their interconnection. So get that service as close to the use case as possible and then get a quick connection back up into some larger cloud service for storage or additional processing. Interesting way of doing it. I think ultimately bare metal is the way that most people want to operate if you're not in the cloud. And if you say to yourself, well, if AWS, Google, and Azure have got what they got going on, and your real reason you go to AWS is they've got a managed database for you, and they've got a fraud detection service, and they've got a DNS service, mm-hmm. and they've, you know, all that sort of stuff, and they've got the scalability. But there's also a need for people who just want really well done bare metal in the right place. And I don't believe that the hyperscale cloud, you know, who've been over investing up the wazoo, and notably, their spending cut way back this quarter. Uh, so the last quarter, Q4 of 2019, uh, they scaled back by as much as 20% on purchasing, which has got a real impact, according to the financial news that I read. So maybe this is a realisation that, yes, there's a lot of stuff going on in the cloud. There's a lot of startups in the cloud. Some of the enterprises are moving some of their services to the cloud. But really, it's about edge computing is for new markets like the IoT market where you're, uh, we've talked about Kubernetes and everybody's saying the containers is in the future. And I'm no longer convinced of that. I think if people want to run Kubernetes, they're going to run it on top of virtual machines, which they're going to run on top of bare metal. And bare metal might be the play here. So you might if you're building a new app, you might want to buy bare metal servers from Equinix in 10 locations around the world and build a Kubernetes cluster in each one rather than going to AWS and paying the high prices for the flexibility and the scalability and the lock-in. Right. <laughs> yeah, my anticipation is that AWS is not quaking in its boots about Packet. They've no. done very well <laughs> with their uh, approach to the market. Packet is more specialized, but there are definitely use cases for it. And some financial notes, uh, Packet raised $36.6 million in venture funding over two rounds to date. And as we mentioned, there's no release on how much Equinix paid for it, but you can assume two or three times that probably, so maybe $100 million. So not a huge acquisition, but uh, a hmm. smart niche play for Equinix to expand its use cases. 
the question is, can Equinix management, which is, you know, above packet, actually sustain this? Are they going yes. to be able to innovate on an in-house software development project or are they going to squash it because they're incompetent? Uh, that's a reasonable that's question to That's always a risk ask. with an acquisition, yeah. yes. Absolutely. It's always a risk with an acquisition. There's a very much a chance, like if you're in the telco business of interconnection and suddenly you've got a software development team saying, you don't seem to understand, we just don't work that way. You know, we have to make this product from nothing. You right. don't just resell something or, you know, it's not the way you work. You know, it's a completely different business model. The finance model is different. And there's every chance that somebody like Equinix will fluff it. So I would say 40% chance of making a difference. Say? We shall see. Yep, sure. Yep. Mark that yep. down. Yep, there's yep. your marker. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, a couple of privacy stories. First, Google has announced it plans to phase out third-party cookies in its Chrome browser over the next two years. The company says it's currently not blocking third-party cookies, which other browsers do because it wants to make sure that workarounds like fingerprinting don't take the place of third-party cookies. You know, if if, if I couldn't hear the wah-wah noises loud enough, it would just break my heart that Google is finally giving me blocking third-party cookies because, of course, Firefox and Safari and all the other browsers automatically block third-party cookies. So Chrome is the only browser allowing third-party cookies today. Now, third-party cookies have been very popular for things like affiliate sales. You know, when you go onto the web and you say, click here, and um, and a cookie tracks you from one website to another. And or even as you move, it used to as you move around the internet, it tracks you as you go from site to site to see what, mm -hmm. you know, if you went to company A to buy a wing wong, and then you go to company B and you shop for their wing wongs and you get to company C. If company C can see that you've been, you know, buying the wing wongs after Hilly and Affiliate, they can give you a cheaper price and then win the deal, right? So, right. I think. so that's what's been happening. And of course, with third party cookies now being broken, you can only get them from the first party. That means the store that you're shopping, you know, if you're shopping different, they can't see each other's data anymore, which is wah wah, which is a privacy issue, right? And the Absolutely. fact that Google Chrome doesn't block it is terrible, in my opinion, and a gross abuse of privacy. What was once a useful thing has been abused so consistently by the ad industry. Now, Google has plenty of options for tracking you, of course, right? Consider that all of your email and your Google Mail contributes to Google's knowing about what you do. And just to break that down into something useful, every receipt from Amazon or anything that you've ever bought online that you've probably yes. saved in your email just in right. case. Goes in my Gmail, yes. Goes in your Gmail and Google knows that you happen to like buying virtual donuts in boxes of 12, you know, <laughs> and you're also on a diet plan, perhaps, you know. You know that explains all the ads for virtual donuts that have been popping up in my browser lately. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, why is it that Google knows so much about you? It's because it's got its email and it's also got its analytics. So just about every website has Google Analytics on it and Google gets a lot of data about which websites you visit because you're logged in, you've given Google permission to track you, analytics is installed on the website. Boom. All right. So this is just some of the ways that Google can track you around the internet. It knows from your search because when you logged into the search, it then tracks every search that you make. So it's not like it needs third-party cookies and it could turn it off today and nothing would happen. It's just, you know, bloody mind and it's not to admit that, you know, we can track you plenty of other ways. I think it's more about people out there relying on third-party cookies. But at the end of the day, when 40% of the web browsers stop using third-party cookies, the whole game's over. It's 100% or nothing. You have to have a full system for those things to work. We, we have a link to the blog where they announce it. Check it out for yourself. But uh, they're making it very clear that in addition to users, they're trying to balance the need of advertisers, which makes sense because that's where they make all their money. And so that's their prime constituency. They don't want to destroy their business model or, or piss off their customers. So that's why they're taking this in baby steps. But the tone, <laughs> the tone of the blog is also sort of like, 
we're the grown-ups in the room and we're trying to do this in yeah. a smart way that's best for you. And I'm like, come on. It come on. Uh, Safari and Firefox have caught you with your pants down and you had to follow <laughs> exactly. the market, right? That's basically exactly. now, that's pretty much I've it. said before that if you work for a corporation, you need to switch out of Chrome ASAP. And yes, I know that that would be painful and switching back to Firefox is going to be a problem. But Google Chrome leaks personal data and IT companies are buying it to track what you are doing as a company. So they literally track IT people inside companies so that when the sales rep comes onto your site, he knows what you've been browsing on the internet. Okay? It's like a sinister Santa Claus. <laughs> and that's what Chrome does for you is it makes that happen. So you really need to get out of Chrome as a matter of urgency because it's a, they've got more data about what you're doing than you know about yourself. They have a competitive edge in the deal cycle. All right, sticking with privacy, Verizon Media has just launched a new privacy-friendly search engine called OneSearch. The company says the search engine doesn't, quote, track, store, or share personal or search data with advertisers. Its privacy features include no cookie tracking, no retargeting or personal profiling, no storing user search history, no sharing personal data with advertisers, and encrypted search terms. What? <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> it's like, What? So, you know, Verizon has not exactly established themselves as a consumer-friendly organization. I would broadly put Verizon in the consumer-hostile market. <laughs> you know, they bought Yahoo as a, and, and AOL and a bunch of other content sites literally so they could breach your privacy and track you. That's why yes. they're doing it, right? Yes. So even if the website, the search engine, isn't doing cookie tracking or retargeting or personal profile, the network does. So, they, so they're using the network to track you and selling the data out of the network, just not from the search engine, in my view. And don't forget that the advertisers who advertise on the site have their own analytics and their own, they're gathering their own data and breaching privacy in their own right. So yes, the search engine might not be, but when you're a big company with lots of other stuff going on, Verizon can track you as you move around their network. So it knows what its customers are looking at. And if they use that search engine, now they know that... Joe Blow at this house is looking at this website and they're in this search engine on their network. They're not giving that data away to Google. That's probably about it. I, I find it quite amusing that they're going to go with the privacy angle. Yeah, also color me skeptical. There's a story in The Verge about this, and it reminds us that this same company was fined by the FCC for using super cookies that tracked user cell phones with no permission requests or opt-out features. So mm. uh, I will stick with DuckDuckGo. Yeah, yeah. Duck, duck, go. And for those times when, I'll go explicitly to Google. You know, I'll go yes. to google.com in, in the bar and search for what I want to search and then not give away. Yeah, same here. That's what my settings are. Yeah. Although at the same time, I am pleased to see more tech firms realizing privacy could be a competitive differentiator. And if they're actually serious about it, that's a good thing. Mm. Uh, and it also may be putting a little bit more pressure on Google. Mm -hmm. uh, but as I said, I still uh, uh, have no plans to use OneSearch. Also, this type of tracking is expensive. Right? Putting in an analytics engine and a data storage system and then extracting useful signal out of that and selling it off is an expensive business. So it might just be that they've just lazied out. They actually had a search engine thinking that it was going to be able to be a, a revenue source and they've decided to just put it out there and see if they can do something with it. That wouldn't be surprising either, right? That it, it, uh, based on the story I read about it from The Verge, it was a property they've had and hadn't done much with, so there may be something to that speculation. <laughs> Just making stuff up, but that sounds very plausible to me. <laughs> uh, the special message I take out of this is you've got to be careful about false privacy claims. You know, you've seen Brave Browser, we talked about this a few weeks ago, blocks some ads and tracking, but replaces it with its own. Mm. 
you can opt into Brave's privacy thing where they actually put their own ads in, which are supposed to be private, but they're not. They're ads, right? And Ghostry, for example, there's a number of ad blocking tools out there. They block ads, but they also have a whitelist that trusted in inverted commas, ad platforms can pay to be on and avoid the blocking. So if it's an ad blocking thing that doesn't actually block ads because somebody bribed you not to block their ads, that's not exactly entirely moral. Um, So, yes, I use a paid-for tool that doesn't derive money. It's not free. It only costs a few dollars a year, five dollars a year or something, and it's worth doing. So. Uh, Well, we'll have links in the show notes if you want to go check it out for yourself. Uh, A quick break to tell you about our sponsor today, Thousand Eyes. They help organizations deliver business-critical services by providing performance visibility and actionable intelligence from every user over any network to every app, including Office 365 and Salesforce. They've got cloud agents, enterprise agents, and endpoint agents, which they use to gather unique insights on network behavior, topologies, and how they affect application performance. With Thousand Eyes, you can generate performance data through active monitoring techniques from global vantage points and quickly pinpoint the root causes of device faults, congestion, Wi-Fi quality, DDoS attacks, and more. You can share events, dashboards, metrics, and visualizations with vendors and customers to work together to resolve problems faster. We've got a special offer for Packet Pushers listeners. You can sign up for a free account at thousandeyes.com slash packetpushers. Choose a free t-shirt while you're there. All right, back to the news. A group of bipartisan senators in the United States have proposed a $1 billion subsidy to spur the development of 5G in the United States as a way to counter Huawei's influence. Uh, so this is part of the U.S. government's, you, you know, the fact that we're talking about this is actually a sign that there's not much news this week, right? <laughs> it's a bit quiet. It is um, quiet. Yeah, Cisco Live next week, we'll probably see some more announcements. Um, it's, it's Cisco Live Europe will be on, so maybe we'll see some announcements. But I think mm-hmm. this is interesting in the sense, and I wanted to talk about it because the U.S. government is saying it wants to subsidize 5G in the USA. <laughs> and there's a big political issue going on that 5G is is the new oil. And if a country doesn't have a suitable 5G infrastructure, they're going to fall behind in the global race for supremacy. Yes. And uh, the 5G manufacturers in the US got out of it all years ago. So Cisco abandoned uh, its 3G technology, uh, I want to say 10 years ago, because it didn't want to be doing that technology. And all the other companies sort of got out of that market, leaving it to Nokia, Ericsson, ZTE, and Huawei. And Huawei really has put a lot of money in here. So... Uh, I wanted to draw your attention to an article where Huawei has actually spent tens of billions of dollars over a decade or so to be- develop 5G technology and products. And th- there's a link in the show notes to a Wall Street Journal article that, you know, while Huawei might have got as much as $75 billion to turn it into a national champion. From the Chinese government, you mean? From the Chinese government, right? That's yeah. the sort of investment you need to become a 5G sort of star. I would say to you that, you know, Huawei has spent tens of billions of dollars over a very long period of time to become a 5G company. And that's why it's been successful. It's also able to do it cheaper for whatever reason. And it's able to get customers. It's got very successful throughout Asia Pacific region and Africa and Europe, selling its 4G, 5G networking capabilities. And to suddenly come up with a billion dollars, I think a billion dollars is not enough. It's a nice piece of political theatre. And if you look at the US market, the US vendor market, who's going to make a 5G piece of equipment? It's really Cisco and that's about it. I don't can't see Juniper or Extreme or I can't see any of the optical vendors getting into that market. So a billion dollars isn't really going to cut it. 
No, uh, absolutely not. When you compare it to potentially $85 billion of investment between Huawei itself and the Chinese government, a billion is nothing. Yeah. The story I read about this also said that they're aiming this towards software development rather than hardware. Uh, Again, not sure how that's necessarily going to help because any equipment manufacturer can use that software, including Huawei. So there's an issue. Uh, I want to know what tech lobbyists were involved in the crafting of this bill. It smacks of a boondoggle to me, uh, a little bit of money transfer from U.S. taxpayers into some tech companies' pockets. If the 5G market is as big and lucrative as it's being touted, shouldn't U.S. companies already have a market incentive to get into 5G? And isn't that the point of capitalism, which we're supposed to be a capitalist country? Got to remember that the tech companies, well, like most U.S. companies, got a massive tax break, really, recently for offshore rebates, right? And those tax breaks (laughs) amount to up to a trillion dollars. That would certainly be some R&D money there if they were interested. And that's what you you would reasonably expect. And effectively, that is a state aid. So if you're complaining about why are we getting free money from the Chinese government, you should realize that the U.S. US government has done the same thing, albeit a little bit more broadly and not well targeted. But the US companies didn't choose broadly to invest in new technologies or to start their own R&D efforts or to build new products. Mostly they've used it to give money back to shareholders, make the rich people richer in the share market rather than actually do anything with the money. Um, So, you know, the US government has a problem in that the tax credits that they thought you know, would have promoted the market or most people thought they would, you know, there'd be a massive innovation to be spending on new companies. There'd be more acquisition of startups. It hasn't really worked out that way, although some of the money has come through to the market. Most of it's just gone back to the billionaires who own the bulk of the stock market and and done really well. So, you know, at this point in time, uh, Huawei has developed lots of technologies. They've built a very large patent portfolio, perhaps by my understanding, rightly or wrongly, more than half of the patents in the 5G space are actually owned by Huawei because they've been doing the research. But they did offer recently to license that portfolio to US companies on the basis that they could get access to the US market. So this billion dollars might be able to enable a suitable vendor, perhaps Cisco, to license those patents and then just go straight to building up a product portfolio. Now, keep in mind that this would make the US a captive market because there's really only Nokia and Ericsson the two European companies building 5G networks. Yes. And so if there was a US supplier, they would have virtually a guaranteed market. They would have a very non-capitalist ability to charge anything they like for that gear. (laughs) Which is part of the problem in that Huawei can come in a lot cheaper. Yes, except it's locked out of the country because of the uh, the China thing. So interesting thing. I don't think people go on like the billion dollars is actually worthwhile. I think it's like a, a... literally a cup of tea in a thousand gallon water tank. It's really not the issue here. The issue here is that the local companies in the US have decided not to be in the 5G market, especially in the 5G RAN space and the tower space. So what's that? Why is that? And I don't think it's money. No. Well, I don't know. Uh, But what irritates me about this bill is that it's useless. Uh, It's a waste of money. And it's just a transfer of taxpayer money into tech companies' pockets that's not going to provide anything to us uh, other than make us feel good. We're keeping Huawei out. Hey. Yeah. Yeah, Well, it's it's not my job to question. It's not my job to question politicians. My job is to point out that it's fairly consistent across the world. So what the US doing here is playing catch up to other countries in the world. Certainly Nokia and Ericsson get their own subsidies from their governments as well. So links in the show notes if you want to go read about it yourself. Uh, th- this bill has just been proposed. It's, it hasn't moved anywhere yet. Uh, but if you see it come up for a vote, call your senators and say no. Uh, but let's move on. Uh, an almost six-year legal battle between NetScout and Gartner has come to a close. The state Supreme Court of Connecticut has ruled that Gartner did not defame NetScout by placing it in the challenger square of Gartner's magic quadrant. 
Yes. Now, this was, I remember reading about this in 2014, and that's a long time ago, isn't it? I that's think. when the, the that's when Netscout launched launched the lawsuit back in 2014. Yeah. So it's fairly interesting. I think what I want to do is I want to ask you what you think first, Drew. What do you think? Because you're much closer to this analyst side of the business. You've had a lot more contact with these companies than I have over the years. So what happened is NetScout got put in the Challenger quadrant back in 2014 in a report. Uh, they sued Net uh, Gartner, one, saying that it was defamation, and two, saying that Gartner had a pay-to-play model because NetScout wasn't using Gartner's advisory services and therefore got dinged uh, in the Magic Quadrant rankings. However, over various lawsuits against Gartner, they have actually not been able to prove that pay-to-play exists. And the, essentially, the state Supreme Court is saying that Gartner has a First Amendment right to say this because it's an advisory and consulting service and it's not a mm. malicious, it's not maliciously trying to defame NetScout. So yeah, people have a lot of impressions about Gartner and how they work in the magic quadrant. And there's always been rumors about, you know, you want to be a client to make sure you get a good position. But NetScout had the opportunity to prove it in court, could not. So there it is. Yeah, which is good news for packet pushers in a way, because now we're protected sometimes from some of the things we say. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> I didn't I didn't think about that, but yes. <laughs> I did because I'm the one often being a little bit <laughs> a little bit cheeky, shall yes. we say? <laughs> uh, so let me give you my perspective because we here, you know, or at Packet Pushes, we have a similar sort of problem. And I think my view of this is that I know some products and some vendors better than others, right? And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. part of that is because I go to their conferences and part of that is because I meet people. Some of them is because they talk to me. And specifically, when a vendor sponsors a show here, then I spend time learning more about that product, that technology, and that vendor, right? Right. So that creates a position where when the more I understand a specific product, the more I the more you may be inclined to talk about it, the more you yes. may be inclined to mention it, yeah, yeah. or, or to it's like, feel for like example, they've got a direction, yeah. Yeah, so uh, late last year we did a live event in New York with Glueware, and part of that involved the preparation of six hours' worth of content. Well, I spent several days going over the Glueware and writing stuff and thinking up notes and preparing sessions, and, you know, so all of a sudden I'm much more uh, informed about Glueware than I am, say, Cisco ACI or Cisco's NSO product, and... That is what happens if I spend time on your product. And if you spend money with me to get my attention, then I tend to know more about what's going on, right? So the the difference between us and analyst firms, though, is that we're very transparent. We're very open. So if we talk about a vendor, it's in the open. And right. behind the we, scenes, we tell you when a show is sponsored, yes. Exactly, right? And we tell you that the vendors spend money with us and you know and you can see it. You can go back and check it all out. You can, And we talk about it when we talk about stuff in things like this. We talk about, you know, say, and you just make a note that it's a sponsor or whatever. So I think the challenge here is, and, and what's more, when I talk to people in the audience, they tell us that they understand that basic principle. They feel that generally we're open and that we're not hiding anything, that it's not, you know, whatever. So... Gartner, however, has created a unique relationship with IT buyers. It is seen as a um, somebody who can give unique advice, and if you're not listed in the Gartner, you do companies do suffer substantial negative impacts financially. They lose sales, they lose exposure with customers for those customers who trust what Gartner says, right? Yep. And so the reality is, is that for vendors, spending money to get in analyst faces does have an impact, and it the does. general feedback I've received from vendor people, and there are vendor people who are specialist Gartner relationship people who can get into Gartner's faces and spend money with them and get better coverage, right? And it's basically 
pay to play. But it's not pay to play in the sense of here's a million dollars, put me in the top right hand corner, it's a bung or a bribe. It's a you've got to engage, you've got to provide them with information, you've got to get them to analyst days, you've got to So I guess my final point is here, it looks like pay to play. Perception is reality, it is pay to play. In a sense, not 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 in the outright bribery sense, but in the sense no. of when you spend time and money with folks, then you are more top of mind. That's right. But it looks like pay to play. It does, yeah. Perception is reality. So no matter, this is going to come up over and over. And the, the weakness in the Gartner model is the lack of transparency. So they don't, because they hide everything behind a paywall, but they publish the outcome publicly, there's no way for normal people to say, is this a valid criti- is this valid criticism? Is this reasonable? And it's that lack of transparency in an era of open source and transparency. You can't keep hiding things behind closed walls. And I think this will continue until the analyst firms start following a model like what we're doing. And we have open. We put all of our stuff in the open, all the links, all the sources, you have them there. Um, and you can see what they are. Now, there's probably problems with that you know Gartner is a billion dollar revenue a year they make a lot of money out of selling that from a closed model it's not going to change anytime soon right the other thing is that the magic quadrant you know whatever you may think about its methodologies or its validity is potent uh it's a great graphical picture of a space an executive can look at it and go I want that one because it's in that quadrant right <laughs> so as a tool it's really powerful. And so that opens Gartner up to criticism from folks who feel they've been mistreated. Uh, NetScout tried to take it down a legal avenue and was not successful. Yeah. But the point is, it looks like pay to play. It smells right. like pay to play. Guess what? You just <laughs> stood in a pay to play. And I, but, but I don't believe that that's necessarily the intent, although you know, there's no malicious intent. That's just the way it works. So, yeah. All right. Again, links to the show notes if you want to read more about it. Uh, Our last piece for today, Cisco recently announced it was paying six professional golfers to be brand ambassadors. And Greg, I think you wanted to ask listeners whether this kind of thing really matters to them. Yeah. So every time I see a company sponsor sports, it's like when HPE, when Dell used to sponsor Formula One or NASCAR. Sorry, not Dell. It was EMC that was sponsoring NASCAR or HPE sponsoring Formula One at one point or another. Whenever these companies start to sponsor a sports ball or a car thing or, you know, petrol powered or something like this, it's usually a sign that the company's stuck for ideas. They just have no capability for what to do. And I don't quite understand why technology companies sponsoring sport people is a thing. Just don't understand this at all. So I wonder I wanted to get people's viewpoint. I understand that sponsoring sports is probably a good thing for sports, but if I as a customer, from your point of view, is Cisco sponsoring six young people in the golf, in the American golf circuit, does that actually move the needle for you? Does that encourage you to do something? Now I agree. Getting free golf tickets, there's no doubt about this. And my point would be is that, yes, if you're getting free golf tickets, well, that's good for you, but you should be doing a better job of your looking after your employer. Because if you're buying stuff for him, something for a couple of free tickets to a golf game, you aren't um, delivering good value to your, to your employer. And most likely this has been done so an executive can get free tickets to the event, not so much about you. Yeah, so it's definitely a branding exercise. It's a marketing exercise, uh, and it's a customer relations exercise. I can by being a partner with these golf folks. Cisco is also a big sponsor of the PGA Tour, which is a big golf tour here in the U.S. 
Uh, they're the technology provider, but I think that also means they get access to things. And so if you can take some big clients to a PGA event, uh, then, hey, that feels great. And that's our, you know, that's your relationship uh, spend there. So uh, does they say about advertising and marketing, 50% of your spend doesn't work, but the problem is you don't know which 50%. So they splash out on a lot of different things. I hope it has an effect and who knows whether it matters. But I do think, yeah, executives and uh, highfalutin customers do enjoy this kind of uh, this kind of benefit. Tickets to yeah. a baseball game or whatever. I'm okay with that. That's fine. If you want to take somebody to a golf game or a steak dinner or whatever, that's okay. But this sort of stuff of bragging that you've sponsored a sports as a way of saying that I've got some magic superpower and, you know, it doesn't really resonate with me, but I'm wondering what the audience thinks, right? Yeah. Yeah, hit us up with an FU. Does, does it matter? Do you care? Do, does this... Do you get any benefit out of this, or is it just money that could be spent elsewhere? Uh, yeah, that's what I think. It would be better spent on social media influencers like, you know, bloggers and community people instead of a half a dozen golfers who do nothing with technology. And <laughs> it's not like Cisco sells stuff to people who watch golf particularly. Right. Not yes. networking gear anyway. They might have relationships with them, but those people aren't the buyers. They're just the objectors decision making well you know i always think about all of the signs i see for barracuda networks in the airport and i'm thinking are they getting anything out of this i really don't know but again you you don't know where that marketing dollar is going to affect someone so you spread it around yes that's it all right well that wraps up our news portion for today's show stay tuned for our tech bites conversation with thousand eyes on last year's big internet outages that's coming right up Welcome to Tech Bytes, the mini virtual donut podcast that gives you a quick but comprehensive look at products and technologies in the real world. Today's show looks back at some of the most impactful internet outages of 2019 with sponsor Thousand Eyes. We'll discuss what happened in these outages, who was affected, and lessons learned and important takeaways. Our guest is Angelique Medina. She is Director of Product Marketing at Thousand Eyes. Angelina, welcome back to Packet Pushers. And let's jump right into the first outage we want to talk about. We're going back to June of 2019, and the problem occurs with Google Cloud. What happened? Yeah, so this was a pretty significant outage, even by Google's own way of characterizing it. So it, it all started on a Sunday morning and around 9 a.m. Uh, the outage lasted about four hours. And it wasn't a clear initially what was going on is there wasn't a lot of information available from Google, except to say that they were investigating an issue with uh, Google Cloud networking. And shortly after that, they provided updates that the issue was due to high levels of congestion in certain parts of their network. Mm-hmm. Now, what was clear to us and to many of our customers um, and many of their customers is that large portions of Google services, including GCP, G Suite, and YouTube, just simply were not reachable. And we mm-hmm. were monitoring some sites hosted in U.S. West and U.S. East uh, GCP regions, and they were completely unreachable for the duration of this outage. Mm-hmm. And from a network standpoint, what we were able to see was really interesting, and that was that for impacted services, all network traffic was getting dropped at Google's Edge. So we were seeing 100% packet loss, and that was happening at the gateway routers, and traffic just simply wasn't even getting into Google's network, which is really strange when you're hearing that this is a congestion <laughs> issue. And, and in that scenario, you know, if, where it's a congestion problem, you might see different levels of packet loss over a period of time, and that wasn't what we were seeing. You were seeing a complete loss of service in, lo- in the flow. Yeah. That's right. Right. 100% loss and all happening, you know, at Google's edge. And that looked really odd. And at the time of the outage and looking at how this packet loss was manifesting, it was almost as if the edge routers didn't have a route to send the traffic to within Google's internal network. Mm. Now mm-hmm. that turned out to 
be the correct assumption because a few days post-event, when Google issued more detail about the root cause, they said that it was ultimately flaws in its maintenance automation that led them to take down all of network management clusters for certain parts of their network. And so they yeah. had you know, effectively decapitated their control plane. Wow. Um, so within a few minutes, BGP routing was withdrawn between certain parts of their network. Uh, so while the network infrastructure itself was fine, network capacity was significantly reduced and certain services and locations just became completely unavailable. See, the thing for me about knowing about this is the fact that you saw it before Google admitted to it, yep. was that if I was running Google uh, Enterprise, you know, the, the Google Docs, the Google Sheets, the Google Presentations and all that sort of stuff, I'd want to know about this before Google does so that when my boss comes down to me and says, everybody's telling us that Google Cloud is down, what's wrong? Is it the network? And, of course, I would go and check my internet connection. I would check various bits and pieces of the things that I own. But I've got no visibility into the internet. But you do. Yeah, absolutely. And services like G Suite are just becoming much more important for or enterprises, um, Google Docs, as you mentioned, Gmail. And, you know, I think that a lot of uh, folks consider, you know, companies like Google to be somewhat infallible in terms of their ability to deliver a service. And I think this was an interesting kind of, you know, reality check that uh, every network, um, doesn't matter who um, owns or operates it, you know, is, is going to be prone to uh, outage events at some point. But one of the key takeaways here is that, though, that you have that mean time to innocence. It's not on our end. It's on exactly. Google's end. And yes, exactly. we can actually prove it's Google, not us. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, is it my own ISP? Maybe there's an issue there. You wouldn't necessarily think that it was Google that was the problem, right? Because Google, you know, um, uh, they've been doing this a long time. But to be able to kind of see, you know, where the problem is actually occurring and be able to communicate that to your internal stakeholders in particular um, is mm. really, really important because you don't want to be kept yeah. caught flat-footed with something like this. <laughs> You want to look smart. You, like, there's nothing worse than as a network engineer. And although, to a certain extent, we've been living this way for the last couple of decades. You know, we check everything and everything looks up and we go, it's not the network. Yeah. But we can't prove it's not the network. And that's the challenge here. So you spend hours just looking around and then all of a sudden the server guy pops up and says, my bad. I took the right. DNS setting, you know, whatever yeah, it yeah. is. Yep. You know, yep. and, and you go like, oh, I've just wasted all day, you know, whatever. And I think as we get into SaaS services... This is a real issue because we're turning more to, uh, you know, whether it's Microsoft or it's Google or if you've got a cloud security broker or you've got something else. Is it the security broker itself? Is it the third-party service that's a problem or is it the internet between you and them that's a problem? And that you were able to show here in this case that it was actually Google that was having the problem, not just the internet itself. Yeah, absolutely. So we have to expect that giant cloud providers, SaaS providers are going to have problems. But what what can I do as an enterprise? What is my remediation or my business continuity strategy if it's not on my end, but I actually have no input or influence? Or there's nothing I can do to remediate with this cloud provider. Is there anything I can do besides just have that mean time to end it and say, I know it's not our fault? even though we still can't get any business done. Is, is there anything else that can be done? There is. I mean, it is important to be in the know and to be able to communicate effectively internally. And if you have customers that are impacted, to be able to, you know, effectively share what the root cause is and, and so they know that you're on top of things. But even with these external providers, you know, being able to show that you were impacted by an event like this is important. You know, for example, in this particular case with Google, some services were impacted and some weren't. So some of their customers were affected and to know for sure 
that you were impacted to be able to prove that and show that is important just dealing from a from a management and SLA standpoint. But there are certain cases in which you may be able to impact um, how, for example, your traffic is routed. If you know that there's an issue upstream from, say, your ISP um, where there might be an outage event, you may be able to work with your provider to route around the problem. And we have seen that with our customers as well. So it isn't as if the internet is entirely outside of your control. If you have commercial relationships that you can leverage, you can actually make a difference in in how you reach services. Okay. So for example, if the problem was located to just Google West, maybe I could redirect to Google East or some other zone or region. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're certainly if you're using GCP or any um, cloud service provider, you want to be thinking about redundancy and, and having kind of a, a resilient architecture where you're hosted in diverse regions. Mm-hmm. Um, so if there's a, an impact in one, then you're, you're still okay. You're still reachable. Um, so that's one thing. And also, you want to make sure that you understand what the, the sort of the contingency policies are under stressed events within these um, provider networks. Um, because in the case of Google, they had said some interesting things afterwards, which is that the impact on their customers was based on you know, was policy-based. So some customers were impacted and others weren't. And it would be interesting, you know, you want to have a conversation yeah. with your provider to understand where do you fall in this policy <laughs> tiering, you know? Um, well, the thing is, within any cast environment, you might be able to route, you know, in Asia Pacific and it could be working. But if you're in a different geographical area and the front-end routers in, say, the Americas are down, then you might be dead in America, but not in, you know, in the Far East or something like that. That is... Yeah part of the difference that's going on and keep in mind that organizations like google have their own private backbones that may be working fine but the internet is not so let's move on to another one uh this in 2019 also took place in june that's not a great month for june uh this time it was a route leak and it affected cloudflare can you remind us of the details yeah, so this was um, this was a pretty significant event. I mean, basically, the news of it started to come in in waves because Cloudflare obviously has a large customer base. They serve a lot of enterprise customers, so there are a lot of services that people connect to, like Reddit and others, that are served from CDN providers like Cloudflare, and including know, packet pushes. And inclu- oh, there you go. <laughs> I don't know if you guys were affected by this, but you know, we started to see that folks were complaining that they weren't able to reach certain sites or that it was intermittent or that it was a you know, poor connection. And it, it started to become very clear that a lot of traffic was being pushed into certain provider network, but there was a lot of mis- misinformation out there. I mean, clearly there was something going on. Cloudflare was basically saying, we're up and running. You know, our servers are just fine. But yet it was a widespread issue in terms of reachability. And what we were able to see fairly immediately was that the prefixes for some of Cloudflare services were being announced from a very small uh, service provider. And that was a, an announcement that was is being propagated out through other service providers like Verizon. So basically, because of these faulty announcements, and it was the root cause eventually turned out to be a BGP optimizer that, that DQE was using that was effectively meant to optimize traffic flows within its own network, but they had you know, effectively been inappropriately propagated out to one of their customers. That had then caused this 
you know, effectively massive chaos on a large part of the internet um, in North America. Yeah, didn't it go from uh, DQE, which then went to uh, like a, a small steel company in uh, that's right, Western yeah. Pennsylvania, and then Verizon Allegheny said, yes, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, Allegheny Steel, and then Verizon said, yep, this is the route to Cloudflare. Right, right, <laughs> exactly, which is pretty shocking. I think a lot of people don't realize that you could just simply announce something and then be picked up and, and continue to have that announcement propagated out by even a very large service provider like Verizon. Um, that was certainly surprising to a lot of folks. And the outcome of this event, you know, there was a lot of chatter around things like BGP optimizer software, but also just general internet routing hygiene mm-hmm. um, and the fact that this could have happened. So, you know, in the wake of that, there have been, you know, calls for an increased adoption of, of certain mechanism to secure internet routes and, and you know, provide additional layers of validation. So this, mm. this doesn't happen. It led to a useful discussion, in fact. It did, actually. yeah. And it uh, like there was a lot of talk around manners, MARNS, and yes. mm-hmm. uh, rise of the increase of adoption of RPKI. So it was yeah. useful in the end. And ultimately, Cloudflare itself has, uh, was very transparent. Their, their report as to what happened is very long. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Well, they 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 sort of had a two for that that whole um, that summer because the initial events, this particular incident, wasn't their own doing, right? So they they were completely you know innocent in all of this. They were sort of the innocent victim, and then they had you know about a week or two later, they actually had an incident that was due to their own infrastructure that that caused an issue. Mm. But it's sort of interesting that really any enterprise is susceptible to this, you know, and knowing that and understanding that that's the way that internet routing works and how it can potentially impact not only yourself, but also kind of, you know, the the wider ecosystem of the internet is is something to keep in mind. So if you do have services where you're announcing routes to your service, you want to know if there are other players out there, whether they're, you know, nefarious or or they're um, just careless that fingered that right right ha, yeah. that have maybe inadvertently uh, uh announced something that belongs to you yeah it's the transparency the the sheer lack of information that's available yeah. here uh and it's it's i think uh although it's not exactly the right thing but this here is an example of if you're running an sd-wan and something happens in the internet or as i call the internet a public wan and now it In this case, it wasn't Cloudflare's fault. It was an upstream change that Verizon propagated that took Cloudflare off the internet. But it was specifically, Cloudflare got blamed for it, right? Right. Initially, they did. They did. They took a lot of heat initially. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're an organization of a certain site, you need to know if the internet is working against you instead of for you for a change. And customers who have SD-WAN environments need to be thinking about how do they know if something like this is happening. And that's why I think this Cloudflare incident is particularly relevant to enterprises because if you've got an SD-WAN service and something happens in the internet, you need to be thinking carefully about is that internet outage affecting me and do I know about it and how do I know about it and maybe I need tools to look into that. Can you tell us a little bit more about what Thousand Eyes was able to see and, and tell customers? Yeah, absolutely. So almost immediately we could see, you know, that there was some significant packet loss that was occurring. And to your point, a, a lot of our customers um, and a lot of, of companies out there that were impacted as a result of this Cloudflare event were not actually trying to reach a Cloudflare service, but they were sort of the collateral, you know, they were impacted as a result of just the, how the traffic was 
flowing across the internet. It was creating congestion and then packet loss. And then that was impacting their own traffic. So we saw the packet loss uh, that was occurring a lot of different network providers um, or ISPs. And then we were able to get to the root cause of that um, pretty much immediately because we could see who was um, announcing this uh, this route to Cloudflare, and and they really shouldn't have been in the uh, in the mix. They weren't announcing themselves as Cloudflare. They were just mm. announcing themselves into the path. They were mm. inserting themselves into the path, and because they're such a small provider, they weren't really able to handle all of that traffic. And that was what was contributing to the significant packet loss. So we could identify that immediately. We had started kind of sending out some <laughs> some tweets on yeah. that, um, you know, just to just to get some measure of information out there because there was so little to go on at that point, it was just, it was pretty baffling to a lot of folks. Okay. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation about some big outages from 2019. And uh, Angelique, you actually wrote a blog about some of the biggest of 2019. There's a, we'll have a link in the show notes if people want to see. There's there's more. Don't worry. There's more uh, if you want to find out all the, the, the goodness. But where can folks go in the meantime to get more information about Thousand Eyes and, and what the, the company does? For additional information, you can go to thousandeyes.com slash packet pushers. We'll have some additional information there. Um, and of course, check out our blog and, and even our Twitter feed. Whenever there are um, um, outage events um, or interesting things happening out on the internet will usually be pretty involved in contributing some data as to what's going on. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Angelique, for joining us. And thanks to Thousand Eyes for being a long-term sponsor of Packet Pushers. Sponsors help us do what we do. Speaking of which, you can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn, like us on Facebook, and rate us on Apple Podcasts, assuming you can reach them. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.